Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, they think it's all COVID. It is now, as the new world-beating British strain of coronavirus drives cases up beyond 50,000 a day. It's a third national lockdown now inevitable. By the way, we're recording before 8 o'clock on Monday. Plus, the service sector that makes up 80% of Britain's economy was left out of the Brexit deal. International trade expert Dmitry Grozobinski is here to explain why Boris Johnson's new settlement with the EU may turn out to be service without a smile. And what should we look out for in 2021? Our panellists dive into the overlooked issues that are set to make waves this coming year. All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome to the first weekly panel edition of The Bunker of 2021. We hope you had a lovely Christmas and we hope you enjoyed our 12 dailies of Christmas greatest hits over the break. We're now back on schedule with the panel show every Tuesday and dailies on Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, plus the invaluable Start Your Week on Monday mornings. Subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss any. Now, let's defrost our panel. First up, hello and Happy New Year to the editor at large of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunst. Hello, Ian. Hello, 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 hello. Are you tanned, rested and ready for another exciting year? No, no, no. I'm I, I'm so fucking pale. I, I, I'm actually tr- almost translucent by this stage, and I am full of stress and anxiety about the world around me. So, in fact, I, I couldn't be less tanned and relaxed uh, on an almost physical level. Like, I don't think it's physically possible for me to be less tanned and relaxed than I am right now. So there we go. No change there. Um, we've got plenty of COVID and Brexit later, but what did you make this? One of the things that stood out at the, the very start of the week was the decision not to extradite Julian Assange to the US. District Judge Vanessa Baretza said that I find that the mental condition of Mr. Assange is such that it would be oppressive to extradite him to the United States of America. What do you reckon? Well, I mean, it's a good, it's the right result. Um, I don't agree with the reasoning at all. I mean, it's good on the suicide threat. That That's fine. But it's, it would be nice to see the case throw up some sort of protection for journalism. I mean, let's be clear what what Julian Assange is. You know, he is a tiresome egomaniac who basically sort of exploits people's genuine political values to stimulate his own sort of sense of shallow martyrdom, really. And the case against him in Sweden for sexual assault was completely legitimate. It's not to say whether he was guilty or not, but the case was legitimate. He should have faced the charges. Instead, the only thing he hasn't done wrong is hacking, where WikiLeaks actually at the heart of the start of all of this provided a valuable public and journalistic service, which should have been defended today in the court, but instead it was ruled as not being journalistic. So you sort of get to the end of it and you think, after all those fucking conspiracy theories about Sweden, I mean, clearly none of it comes true, right? You look at the case today and the British courts will not automatically send someone off to the to the US any more than the Swedish courts would have done. And yet the ruling was profoundly suboptimal because it failed to take the opportunity to provide some defence for journalism, which is something good that could have come from this whole shambolic affair. Also with us to start off the new year, we have Atlantic staff writer Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello, happy 2021. Happy 2021. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going great so far. I mean, we've already had the astounding spectacle of Donald Trump pressing the Secretary of State for Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to find him some votes and overturn Joe Biden's win. Where does this fit on the Watergate scale? Are we talking a full Watergate, a Watergate and a half, double Watergate? Uh, Carl Bernstein thinks it's worse, so I'm going to go with with his authority on that. I mean, you know, that phone call, which for the record, anyone is listening to this, you can listen to it in full on the Washington Post's website, and it is, I made it a few minutes in before I stopped, but um, it, it is really the ultimate smoking gun. I mean, you've got a president on record pressuring officials in Georgia to recalculate the votes in his favor. It's just, um, it's even, you know, I, 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 I must have said this before, but I feel like I constantly say that, you know, I feel like I can't be surprised, but even till almost the very last days of this administration, I'm still capable of being surprised Hmm. Um, because that was just, yeah, incredible stuff. What really got me was that, yes, the the content is clearly absolutely reprehensible and borderline, uh, you know, probably criminal. But it was the tone where it was like, here's a guy just trying to bully the kind of Queen zoning board. You know, it's like he's bringing out all of the, the, the basic tactics of a cheap salesman to bear on an institute of democracy. It was it was it was not just criminal, but also kind of cheap and low rent. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it. Um, I mean, I think if one of the only positive takeaways, and, and as I said, I should probably go back and, and listen to the whole thing. I was reading some of the snippets of the transcript, but I mean, if, if there was one, you know, kind of positive takeaway from that conversation, it was that, you know, 
clearly our democracy cannot falter completely if there are individuals like the Secretary of State of Georgia who are willing to turn to, who still remains the most powerful um, leader in, in the U.S. and indeed the world, at least until January 20th, and just say no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that so long as there are people like that who are like, look, Mr. President, you've got it wrong, um, then, you know, our, our democracy isn't, isn't completely lost. We've got one last bite at this particular cherry with the uh, the 11 Republican senators led by Ted Cruz, who said they're going to refuse to certify Biden's election win. Uh, Mike Pence has supported this. Are we past the kind of comic phase of Trump denialism and into into real danger? God, was there a comic phase? I missed it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of us, myself included, probably dismissed the president's earlier refusals to accept the, the result of the election is him sort of, you know, quote unquote, coming to terms with it. So you kind of need to give him time to sort of, you know, uh, just, yeah, kind of go through those five stages of grief. Um, we're clearly past that now. But but in terms of the senators who are refusing to certify um, Biden's victory, um, I think what we're finally seeing is some splintering within the Republican Party between those led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who've accepted the result of the election and want to move forward, and those, uh, as you said, led by uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley of Missouri, um, who have fully committed themselves to the Trump narrative. Now, as far as I understand, this is a futile effort. I think both, if I'm, if I've kind of caught up correctly it's that both houses of congress mm. would have to vote to uphold the objections to the electors and i don't think that's going to happen there, there aren't enough lawmakers willing to go with this charade but nonetheless it, i think it's incredibly concerning um uh, that yeah that this is happening at all and in this time of trade and tribulation we're delighted to be joined as our special guest by the founder of explaintrade.com former wto negotiator for australia dimitri grozabinski hello dimitri how are you doing I'm doing very well. Uh, there aren't any senators objecting to my continued employment, so that's a win <laughs> right off the bat. I'm sure we can find some somewhere. We can gin them up from somewhere. We're going to be doing a lot of trade later, but one of the Easter eggs in the trade deal uh, with the EU was who will and will not be on the 90-day visa-free list and what they can do when they're in European Union countries, travelling from Britain to the EU. And it turns out you can do sales and trade fairs, but you can't perform music or, or, or make any other arts performances. Is, is this the end of the of the quick DJ tour? You're going to need to get a visa for every date and a £400 carnet for every country. So the, the answer is maybe. Um, basically, what the deal is on all of this immigration stuff is basically a minimum level of access. So the EU 27 basically says we won't we won't be any more hostile an environment than what's in this deal. And then each of the individual member states gets to look at that baseline and go, are we willing to let Andrew come in and spin some hot tracks for us <laughs> on a weekend to, to make up the money that, you know, Ian doesn't pay him? Um, and basically... Relations some- with the EU are bad enough to be true without me going and playing my old house records. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't negotiate with terrorists, so I, I won't. <laughs> um, I don't know where the EU twenty seven is on that. Um, so, so basically, it, it won't necessarily mean you can't go. It won't necessarily mean that it'll be a hugely onerous visa procedure in every EU twenty seven country. But they've basically reserved the right to once again, having heard your music, decide thank you, but no thank you. The government's response was that. Visas for performing artists were part of a wider offer from Britain, which the EU decided to uh, decline to take. And it, it looked on first blush as if this was simply an attempt to get round the work permit thing by putting in something that's very, clearly very popular with people, the, the opportunity for performing artists to, to travel, and to have that sort of almost be a bargaining ship, to have that kind of, it's possible to turn around and say, well, the EU, the EU rejected the ability for artists and musicians to, to travel. Do you think that's the case? I mean, almost certainly the, the EU did did reject that. Uh, musicians, musicians and performing artists tend to struggle to get into these kind of visa visa exemption categories and deals anyway. Um, historically, in part, that's been because equivalence to the Home Office, I don't know if the Home Office specifically, tends to not want to get into the game of quantifying what is and isn't a legitimate artist mm. um and what like is and isn't like okay you're you're kind of good enough to go and you're not um and they consider it an easily exploitable category um uh, i think a similar thing happened in australia but you yeah, look it's 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 entirely it's entirely possible the uk's position from the start as i think we'll talk about later 
was we want a goods deal and we won't, we won't ask for anything else uh, in case you add even more conditions onto that. This is a case of something that they could have asked for but didn't push for. Let's start with COVID again, the new strain and the government's characteristically decisive action. Before Christmas, the government was sending legal letters to local authorities to demand that they kept schools open. And this Sunday, Boris Johnson said that people need to ready themselves for harsher restrictions, that the UK must be humble in the face of the virus. School closures now seem inevitable. We're recording at five o'clock on Monday. There's an eight o'clock address from the Prime Minister tonight. Ian, according to Politico, government scientists are now talking privately about the COVID death toll passing 100,000 by the end of January. Is this pandemic now officially out of control? Yeah, I think so. I can't. I haven't seen any information that is reassuring for a really long time now. And the scariest part is when you look at what's happening in London, right? Because the thing is, London's been in tier four for two weeks now. And there are no signs that it's working. Like looking, looking at the positivity rate on testing, it's fucking almost vertical, man. I mean, it's about it's above twenty five percent in London at the moment, and that what gets scary about that is we're going to have a conversation in a moment about what the government is fucking up, of mm. which there are many, many, many fucking things. But the really scary thing is we don't actually know whether complete lockdown will even work. Like th- there doesn't seem to be anything that is slowing down the virus, let alone reversing it. So, I mean, it's, you can't, you you don't want to sound alarmist, but it's just, it's very hard to be sort of reserved about the the kind of numbers that we're seeing there. They're scary as fuck. I mean, whichever way you look, whichever way you look at it, this is the peak, like we we are in the peak period right now. And what we're Mm -hmm. seeing out there is as bad as it has ever been. It's, you know, look at it this way. I'll put it this way. The, the more informed someone is that I talk to about this subject, the more full of anxiety they are. The less informed they are, the less anxiety they are. And generally speaking, that is not a dynamic that you want to be in. On Ma at the weekend, Johnson said that the regional rules are probably going to get tougher. There's a potential tier five. It all seems to be tinkering and it may well be that in three hours time this evening possibly you know this is listeners may be hearing this after that if they're not supporting us on patreon we may be back to a straightforward simple lockdown is two questions really is that anxiety and worry that you've described from people who are very well informed on this making its way to the center of decision making and is it making it through to the public? Because, you know, we have these inconsistent rules up and down the country, which people either deliberately or mistakenly misinterpret. People are crying out for clarity. I, mean, I don't blame people for misinterpreting. I mean, I, I mean, I don't even, I barely know what the fuck is in, in a tier at the moment. I mean, and I pay higher than average fucking attention to this stuff. And it is incredibly confusing. I mean, it, all of the messaging that we get, you know, from the prime minister's spokesman, otherwise known as Robert Peston, through which all communication apparently has to fucking flow, is that it's going to be a lockdown tonight. Um, and that that will involve all the schools um, and that will involve further restrictions on outside activity in some form or another. What it won't involve, apparently, is stopping the flights, which is just beyond my fucking comprehension. That, you know, after four years of listening to these muppety twats go on about the need to have full control of the border because there was a Polish plumber that might come over. They still have decided, well, well, of course, we're not going to control the fucking border in the case of a pandemic because that would just be, you know, that would just be completely insane. So it looks like it will be a lockdown. I mean, thinking about what that entails with the schools, you know, to to have Johnson there yesterday saying it's safe to send your kids to school, that's not the fucking point. The point is that you've got kids who, because of Johnson's policy, have mingled with other households at Christmas time. Now, they're coming towards the end of the infection period where we'd be, but some still could be within the infection period from Christmas. Then going into a school where they mingle with kids from other households who can then take the virus to those households. And it seems as if where we've ended up with the government's mixture of just complete ineptitude and incomprehension of the reality that surrounds it, is that after Christmas, where, which was open for many people in many areas to be taken, 
They're then opening up the schools for a few days afterwards, pointlessly, before then closing them. And it seems, it seems as if that's where we are right now. Yasmin, uh, you've, you've got the contrast between Britain's inept handling uh, of, of the virus and the United States' inept handling of the virus. Uh, at least the leadership of the United States is, is changing. What kind of shape do you think we are in for a third wave politically and psychologically here? Um, yeah, I mean, kind of to Ian's point, which I think, you know, really just kind of hammers it home, um, you know, just looking purely at the numbers, it's bad in the sense that, you know, we're netting 50,000 cases a day. And I think we have been for nearly a week now. Um, and that's with large swaths of the population already being under some kind of restriction. Um, so the fact that, you know, we're, we're doing worse than we have at previous high points, but that, you know, we're all like, you know, ideally staying home more and clearly not going to restaurants or pubs is, is quite alarming. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, there, there are vaccines on the horizon. So it's kind of a, a weird situation, I think, where things are clearly bad um, and, and action needs to be taken. Um, but at least unlike the previous ones, there isn't the sense that it's going to go on forever. So you kind of have yeah. this mix of dread and hope, which is a lovely concoction for 2021, I think. <laughs> So the focus is now going to move to the, the the vaccine rollout, and this government does not have a, a great record on managing large scale uh, in, interaction with the public. We've all seen our friends on social media putting their their particulars in and saying, "I'm number twenty nine million. This is terrible. I'm not going to get vaccinated till till twenty twenty two." Jasmine, do we yet have an inkling of how well the vaccine rollout might be going? Um, I mean, just. Kind of looking at the numbers, I mean, to the UK's credit, it is among the countries that have administered the most vaccine doses so far, though it does help when you are, you know, you have the head start of being the first country to authorize a vaccine. I mean, I think what we have to realize is that we're also looking at countries that have access to vaccines right now, which is kind of a privilege in and of itself. I mean, you're looking at the wealthiest countries who have reserved the largest amount of doses. So that's the first thing. Um, but as far as efficiency goes, um, you know, it's obviously, you know, Israel, I think, you know, which obviously has a relatively smaller population and a national healthcare system. I think it's already immunized more than a tenth of its population. Um, and, you know, it's done so, I think, as I understand, in large part by setting up vaccines vaccination centers and stadiums and parking lots and school playgrounds. I think it's even approved a driving clinic. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have the sense that, um, that the UK has kind of gone that far, though it would be quite cool to see, you know, all these stadiums and things we're not using actually yeah. um, implemented. It's, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the beer company BrewDog is apparently mm. in talks with the government to turn their closed bars into vaccination centers because their co-founder basically said, look, it's perfect. You know, we have huge waiting areas. We have huge refrigerators that aren't being used. Um, and apparently they pledged that they would give those who get vaccinated at one of their bars a, a beer or something like a, a beer to mark the occasion. So um, if you really want to go to the pub, get vaccinated. It's kind of it's so unlike BrewDog to jump in on a national crisis and offer to help. It's just so <laughs> uncharacteristic of them. They never do anything. Like that. That's you know. where we are right now, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Dimitri, uh, we've seen over the past few days uh, quite a lot of enthusiastic Brexiters saying that uh, the fact that the, the vaccine was approved quickly in Britain proves uh, is, is, is a Brexit benefit. Europe is still waiting around for two weeks for a vaccine when Britain was storming ahead. From your perspective, does that ring true? Does it, does it, you know, does, was Europe slow to okay its vaccines? I mean, look, this isn't this isn't even remotely my field, and and oh my god, does COVID have enough people who are unqualified to <laughs> opinions? Um, I, I'm often one of them, but today I, I choose to make an exception. The, if nothing else, Europe, I think, has a communication problem in that um, if there were valid reasons to take as long as it took, um, they didn't necessarily super clearly communicate uh, those. I think there are a lot of people who are outside of the usual uh, sort of Eurosceptic circle that had some pretty pretty hard questions uh, for the European regulator around why, you know, a, a vaccine invented by Germans uh, or, by, or by Turkish Germans uh, was like the last thing, Europe was the last to approve its own vaccine. Um, so, so, so I think that there's certainly room for some introspection there. I don't know if you would call it a, a Brexit benefit, given that the UK, as part of the European Union, could have chosen to, to do what it did uh, had Brexit never happened. Mm -hmm. um, but then equally, it's possible the UK would have, in the name of, in an alternate universe, uh, chosen in the name of European solidarity to move in line with everyone else and would have had to 
wait a week or two um, in order to, to lockstep with everyone. So the deal got done. Transition ended. And as of 11 o'clock on New Year's Eve, Britain is an independent coastal nation outside the single market and outside the customs union. Conspicuously absent from the agreement was the services sector, widely recognised to be some 80% of our economy. And even the fishermen aren't happy, claiming that Boris Johnson has betrayed them. Whoever heard of such a thing? Dimitri, you're the international trade expert here. What? Give us your uh, your nutshell on the deal. What was it like, particularly from a services point of view for Britain? Uh, basically what we thought it would be. The UK uh, banked everything on getting effectively a, a goods deal. Uh, to, to give them full credit, it's the most comprehensive goods deal uh, the EU has ever done with anyone. Uh, obviously, there were some some mitigating uh, mitigating factors here. It wasn't entirely down to, to Mr. Davis's and then Mr. Frost's personal charisma, but uh, they banked on getting that, and they effectively sacrificed what they knew were always going to be really tough asks in services to basically avoid giving the EU more things it could trade or more things it could demand concessions in lieu of. Um, this, was a, this was a conscious play. Uh, it was in part a messaging play so that we could all be subjected to a fun year of hearing about Canada-style deals, vassalage and precedent, uh, which was all complete nonsense but seemed to play well. But it was also a, a negotiating thing where they basically tried to make themselves as small a target as possible. Um, now, in services, uh, look, most free trade agreements do almost nothing on services, um, and this one just isn't an exception. Uh, the problem is that in most cases, when two countries negotiate a free trade agreement, uh, one of those countries isn't like the world's largest services exporter as a percentage of their total exports and isn't already heavily reliant on access into the other side's market um, in order to make all of that work. Uh, so that's less than ideal. Uh, most most free trade agreements don't manage to build on what is a low level of access. This one failed to preserve a high level of access, and that's not great. So how do you expect it to play out? Because what we've, you know, our assessment of it so far is that this is the beginning of long and endless renegotiations down to a molecular level uh, in pretty much every aspect of EU-UK interaction. But for services, as, as, a, as you say, a huge um, sector for us, how do you think it's going to play out in the coming years? Yeah, so, so negotiations is part of it, but negotiations almost too strong a word. What the absence of services commitments in this agreement means is that the European Union has reserved for itself, as the UK has, the ability to decide how much access to their services markets to grant the, the UK and EU respectively. So what that means is you're going to see for the foreseeable future, the EU effectively tinkering with the dials and allowing in exactly as much UK access as they think strikes the right balance between getting their firms the services that they need and encouraging firms to set up offices and move staff and those lucrative, high-paying jobs to places that aren't the United Kingdom. That's not going to be like an overnight shift. You're not going to, you know, um, if, you've, if you've got investments in the London cocaine market, don't worry, it's not going to crash. But, uh, it's, but it is going to be this kind of endless readjustment as they tinker with that balance to try to lure over some of those, some of those jobs without creating an abrupt shock. We've talked a lot in, in terms of abstractions about you know the services sector, but exactly what particular industries are likely to what are likely to get in and what are likely to be rebuffed in this dial twiddling scenario you've described? Yeah, sure. So there's there's some stuff that's kind of out already. Uh, you can't operate a commercial you can't operate commercial banking from outside of the EU into the EU. You can't you can't be taking deposits from ordinary French citizens as a as a, as a UK bank in the EU. That's mm -hmm. that's done. The EU effectively doesn't even have a mechanism the way it currently works to to, to really change that, even if it wanted to. Um, so that kind of thing is an example of a of a knob that starts uh, pretty far to the right. In, in other areas, things like insurance, um, the clearing of financial transactions, they have a bit more flexibility. 
um, and, and there are certain things they can allow and certain things they can't. Um, and they will basically look at how do they minimize the shock uh, because a huge amount of contracts for the European Union are currently kind of held and processed in, in London and they don't want to mess with that versus how do they how do they get those businesses to, to move across and how do they kind of subject the UK to the same treatment they subject everyone else. There's an additional kind of hurdle to this as the Swiss discovered, which is that once the EU grants you unilateral access on, say, financial services, they then reserve the right to take that away even for non-financial services-related reasons. Um, so Switzerland discovered when it passed a, a referendum to compromise on, on freedom of movement that the EU turns around and goes, well, what happens if we delist your stock exchange? Um, so, so, so that kind of thing, even because the EU won't be making a binding commitment, they'll just be unilaterally handing the UK some access, they can take it away as well. So there'll be a sort of sword of Damocles hanging over the UK's access, which investors and uh, and capital will have to consider in deciding whether they want to go for a London-based firm or perhaps a Frankfurt-based one. In my limited understanding of this, the EU and the UK have agreed to set out a framework for financial services by March this year and to discuss equivalence decisions. Does that then kind of effectively... Does, does this create a, a, a financial services European Court of Justice by by another name that we will be beholden to? Well, no, not really. What uh, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going to come out of these talks, but where it's almost certainly headed is something around a memorandum of understanding where basically the European Union regulators and the UK and their UK equivalents uh, basically agree on certain procedures to facilitate their dialogues. And basically when one side has a problem with the other uh, or one side has a certification that the other side doesn't recognize, how will they go about moving forward on that? Um, it's unlikely that what you'll see in March is a whole bunch of like legally binding commitments. What you're likely to see is sort of a, a process, uh, like a beefed up G20 or something, um, where the two sides regulators basically agree a framework for how they will work together into the future and not on any one specific thing. A big part of the, a big question is about data adequacy, which is apparently worth £80 billion. I don't know what it is and why it matters. Can you help me? Right. So uh, uh, a few years ago, the, the European Union passed something called the GDPR, uh, which uh, is basically a sweeping, sweeping set of regulations around how companies on the internet uh, must uh, interact with European users and the data of European users. So basically, if you want to store the email address of a European Union citizen, what do, what do you have to do? If you want to process the records of a European Union citizen, what do you have to do? Um, they set up this, this sort of mechanism. And the way the, the mechanism works is basically there is, there is the European Union law. And then for third countries, they kind of have two options. Either the European Union looks at the way that your data handling regulations and laws work and goes, yeah, you're fine. Your laws do roughly the same thing that ours do. So your laws also say that you are not allowed to like, use backdoor access via an email address to find out someone's porn browser history and sell it to the tabloids or something. Um, you know, here, here, here are all these things that basically your laws are roughly the same as GDPR. They do the same thing. We will grant you adequacy. That means that businesses that are based in that country can, as long as they follow some general rules, handle the data, store and process the data of EU citizens and EU companies. If you don't get that decision, if the EU does not grant you adequacy and you want to process the data of European Union citizens uh, or companies, you basically have to jump through 800 hoops where you kind of have to take GDPR and like write it into your terms of service and then do a bunch of other stuff. And if you don't do that and you process either Europeans can't use your service or you, you risk facing really, really high fines uh, if they do. Um, it's, it's about where you store data. 
So basically what's happened here is that the European Union was supposed to make a decision on adequacy by the end of the year, or was hoping to. It didn't. It's granted a four-month kind of reprieve where it said for four months the UK has adequacy. They can extend it by another two months, but within those six months, they have to make a a kind of final decision about why whether UK laws on privacy are good enough as compared to GDPR to grant this decision. The reason that they're hesitating is probably partially protectionist and and commercial because they want to lure over some of those tech companies to, to Europe, but partly they claim to have some legitimate concerns around the UK's kind of data sharing with the US and um, certain sort of security arrangements it has with the US that previously it wasn't allowed to consider in making this decision because it was a security matter and the UK was a member state. But now that it's not, they they get to take a really hard look at. So basically, I've got till August to watch Deutsche Welle and it's probably going to stop. <laughs> going to disappear yeah. off my skybox. If you guys all want to... Uh, I would just bone up on watching Mr. Robot. Um, if you kind of get through all the seasons of that, you'll you'll pretty much get it. Fair <laughs> enough. Ian, um, Dimitri just explained in, in some detail exactly why services got treated the way it did in the, in the negotiation or lack thereof. What do you think that has done politically, domestically uh, to the government? I mean, the, the, the selling of this deal is a fantastic triumph lasted probably till the middle of Boxing Day when fishermen started to complain. The shine is coming off it. What do you think the services bit has done to it? Well, nothing really, because, I mean, it, I, the last few years have been like they, they never, like services just don't exist. So I mean, it was kind of a surprise to me to see how many people were uh, shocked by the lack of services in the deal when it came out. So if you remember, immediately after the Brexit vote, I mean, literally like those weeks afterwards, there was actually quite a lot of chatter about financial services, talking about passporting, things like that. Um, and then it just went away. And it went away, really, I think, re- really due to Theresa May's speech at that Tory party conference in 2016, where she made it clear, which she didn't specifically say the words, but she made it clear by talking about freedom of movement, by talking about the European Court of Justice, that we weren't going to be staying in the single market. And so once that became clear, you just thought, well, that's it then. There, there is no services, right? That, that's just not, that, that's not how that works. And that, that sort of degradation in the ambition of the British government, and which to, to some credit of the Johnson government, actually, they stopped pretending they could have everything. Ironically enough, he really wasn't the cake and eat it guy in the end. They just downgraded the ambition. It, it just wasn't pertinent. So then when the deal came out, it, it was of no surprise to anyone that there was nothing about services in it. And, and actually, oddly enough, the arguments that focus on, uh, focused on services seem to be like a repeat of the kind of arguments that we had in 2016, but that we simply didn't have in 2017, 2018, 2019, or, or the, the first half of 2020. I would add that nobody, like this is a, a perennial trade problem, but nobody understands trade and services, um, sort of myself somewhat included. Um, and it's just, it's really hard to picture because you're talking about, you know, like regulatory changes in how financial products are, are traded. Um, which is most people have no conception of. And secondly, it's just not that same visual as a big queue at Dover. You can fly a drone over. And plus there's, you know, the speak, this, the, the kind of, um, there are certain kinds of industries that tend to get a lot of attention in the trade conversation and they tend to be people who wear hard hats and people who sell services don't all wear hard hats. Well, um, they should so- just all wear hard hats then and it'll be solved. <laughs> yeah. I just, just buy yourself a hard hat. You'll be yeah. laughing, Dimitri. Yasmin, before we move on, the UK has lost access to numerous uh, security databases as part of this uh, particular disengagement, including the Schengen Information System. This stuff has been uh, key to law enforcement and wider security. Um, Priti Patel has, continues to say that Brexit is making us safer. Is it possible to square that circle when all of the evidence is that actually it isn't? Disingenuously, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's, it is a bit unclear to, to kind of how... She's gotten to that. I mean, what, what effectively what she said is, from what I've been following, is that, um, you know, that yes, Britain will be losing access to to these databases, which I, I think it's been said that they, you know, that the that British authorities have used more than 500 million times a year, which is um, staggering. They would be able to grant, you know, police and security agencies even tougher powers. And I think the one she cited was such as, you know, banning basically foreigners who have who have spent uh, a year in, in prison. Um, the only issue there, though, that I can't 
quite figure out is unless you have a database sort of listing who has a criminal record, how do you know that they've done so? Um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I think um, the former uh, Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Ian Blair, has has basically refuted that claim and, and other kind of similar senior um, officials who, who know a thing or two about this as well have said that, you know, that this is going to be a loss that, you know, yes, you could impose so those tougher powers, but how do you make up for a database of that size that there isn't going to be anything that they can make that's going to be better than what already exists. Okay, before we move on then, what do we think is going to be the next major interaction with the EU? What's the next row? Invading France. Apart from invading France, Dimitri, what's the next row? <laughs> well, I mean, once you've got France, I guess. You've got- <laughs> what do you do with La Rochelle? Yeah, absolutely. And- I mean, they're, they're basically, at some point, the, the government has to, you know, start diverging in order to demonstrate proof of concept. Um, and eventually, it is going to lead to some sort of altercation in which, you know, the tabloid press are going to do the same thing. And they're going to start shouting about European judges, whether it's on arbitration or whatever. And it will follow in exactly the way that we expect it to follow. And, and that will be a, a short-term dynamic, which will see us through really until 2024. Um, and what happens after that is, sort of up to the British public, really, because that's when we have elections. So, so you mean to say that we're not going to stop talking about Brexit? But... <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I'm so sorry to, to debate <laughs> with you, but it turns out that actually it, it hasn't been gotten done and that Britain remains uh, in a continent with other neighbouring states <laughs> in which they have to communicate and talk. Well, it, it turns out that Michael, Michael Gove was right. Brexit is not an event. It is a movie. What he didn't realise is it's a movie that never ends. It's the never-ending story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was shit as well. We're trapped in the Zack Snyder director's cut. Of our own <laughs> Finally, it's January, so let's look to the future, because there is a future. Honest, no matter how much the government would like them to stop, the rows about COVID and Brexit will continue to roll on throughout 2021. Climate change will be on the agenda too, not least with the COP26 summit in Glasgow later this year. But what about those events that aren't getting the attention that they should? We've asked each of our panellists to think about something that we should focus on this year that maybe isn't getting that attention and why we should focus on it. Yasmin, what is your thing to look out for in this coming year? So I've spent uh, the last couple of years kind of looking at global protest movements. Um, and though obviously last year, given the pandemic, it, it wasn't a great year for them. Um, those that existed, um, obviously, some repressive regimes basically took the pandemic as an excuse to crush them. Um, but there were some others that were, um, you know, quite amazing. And, and the ones that I'm going to be kind of looking out for in the new year, well, well, there are a few, but one of them in particular is Belarus. Um, it's been five months now that they've been protesting since their um their election in which um, their current president, Alexander Lukashenko, is uh, believed to have rigged the results for, I don't even know how many times he's done this before. Um, but yeah, they basically have a pro-democracy struggle that's um, been going on to, despite the p- pandemic, despite everything, and they're going strong. So um, I'm particularly keen to see, um, yeah, how that transpires. Yeah, they've been kind of doing some fairly innovative sort of socially distancing Protests, suddenly protest, protesting in unusual places and doing unusual things, rather than the traditional gigantic crowd. Yeah, they've they've employed some really interesting tactics. Some of which have been borrowed from other um, kind of uh, protest movements, like the ones we've seen in Hong Kong. Um, but actually, you know, it, weirdly enough, because Lukashenko never really took the pandemic seriously, as I recall, he basically told people to drink vodka and go to saunas, and it would be fine. Um, he didn't really have the pretext of saying, "Look, you guys shouldn't be out and about." Um, because of COVID. Um, but rather the reason that the protesters have been, you know, kind of forming smaller groups and trying to be more agile is because they've been facing really um, tough government crackdowns. So they see kind of the smaller uh, protests as a way of trying to thwart um those those really tough measures. Lukashenko is threatening constitutional reforms in the next few weeks. Obviously, they're not; or they're unlikely to be constitutional uh, reforms in a democratic direction. Do you think that uh, you know I, I, how well are the protesters doing? Are they moving the dial in their direction? Um, in in terms of the pro- promises from Lukashenko. Um, I, I don't look at them too promisingly just because I think he's made similar promises of reform in the past um, to no avail. But I mean, in terms of the protesters themselves, I mean, I think they've 
They've done a lot in the sense that they've really amplified Belarus to the global stage, at least they did last year. Um, obviously, I think, you know, as with all protest movements, it's, you know, media is quite fickle, its attention goes in and out. Usually it has to be some big event or a crackdown to really garner that attention. Whether they can keep that up, I think kind of remains to be seen. But, you know, they've, they're, um, the Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhonovskaya has been doing a lot of work, meeting with a lot of foreign leaders. Uh, they've secured a lot of sanctions against um, some officials in Lukashenko's government. So, so they've done quite a lot. But obviously, Lukashenko remains in power. So, um, I, th- I think they still have more to do. Do you think Joe Biden will make much of a difference to this? Is he going to be outward looking in that direction? Miss Sikhanovskaya hopes so. I spoke to her last uh, last month, and she basically said that she really believes that the U.S. can be a crucial player and that it can really make an impact, which was quite heartening for me because I thought that we'd totally lost um, our standing in the world. But as it turns out, some of us still look, look to us with hope. Um, but yeah, she's she's hoping that you know the president-elect um, had put out, I think, a couple of statements about Belarus, which I thought was quite surprising ahead of the election. And she's hoping that once he takes power um, or once he takes office. I should say, um, in January that um, hopefully he'll be able to, you know, help them out with more direct sanctions against Lukashenko, more support for civil society, that sort of thing. But, you know, the Biden administration is obviously going to have its hands full pretty well, yeah. excuse me, it's going to have its hands pretty full when it enters. So whether Belarus is going to be a priority, I'm not so sure. Okay. Ian, what topics do you think we should be focusing on this year? Um, well, I mean, for me, it's it's really what's going on between the EU and Hungary and Poland. Um, in other words, now that Brexit has happened, can the EU prevent states within it from falling into autocratic populism and just creating this cancer inside of it? That seems to me at the moment to be the biggest threat to the EU and also, most importantly, to its moral standing. And really interesting things played out right at the tail end of last year on this rule of law mechanism. And this is basically the EU's attempt to use one of the few bits of leverage that it has, which is the money, against um, Poland and Hungary, which is um, really trying to make access to EU cash contingent on respecting the rule of law. Now, that was sort of actually more moderate than it sounds because it was only pertaining to rule of law breaches that impacted the EU's financial uh, interests. But... It established a precedent. You know, it's much easier to change the criteria later than it is to change the principle of something. This fundamentally said, you stick by the rule of law or you're not getting any more of the fucking money. And that was quite a battle because there was a threat of veto from Hungary and Poland on on the uh, sort of 1.8 trillion recovery package the EU had. The way it ended up was that It survived in full. The full package remained, the words of it, the letter of it, the principle of it remained. But they ended up delaying the point at which it would be implemented. And the way they did that is to say, look, we're going to hold this back until there's been um, an opportunity to challenge it in the European Court of Justice, which Hungary and Poland will be doing. And that case really will be vital. I don't think that they're going to have any luck with it. But seeing how that plays out, is really a story about whether the EU can stand up for its principles and it's going to bubble away through the year. Dimitri, what should we be thinking about this year? What's your choice? So, you know, I I had been wanting to talk about uh, China, which is the absolute elephant in the room uh, on the global stage. Um, But but something something occurred to me that for the UK, I think this year, something to watch is going to be the evolution of the, the media sphere. And especially the the right wing, I suppose, the conservative media sphere, um, because you basically have this confluence of of lots of different things happening at the same time. You've got the the BBC license fee that's grown increasingly unpopular at the same time as you've got between one and two new conservative news channels being launched, um, and I think that pulling a lot of um, even traditional publication Overton windows to the right. Um, you've got the BBC that's now kind of has a head who's talking about uh, and has commentated talking about the need to like institute some sort of conservative comedian quota um, or possibly just shoot Nish Kumar. It, it's not clear depending on the, the press release. Um, <laughs> and so you've got all of that happening. And at the same time, you've got the US, which in terms of this kind of things tends to lead the pack where Fox News is being outmaneuvered as not conservative enough by OAN and Newsmax. 
So you've got this kind of, they're, they're five chapters ahead in this book of horror where you have organizations that have looked at an organization that used to be the boilerplate for sort of borderline insanity and gone, no, 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 that is, there is a niche here and there is a way to force them out as being, you know, Fox News home of the home of the liberal. And I think in terms of what happens this year, the UK should be looking at that. I'm not suggesting like censorship or anything like that, but I think in terms of what to watch, how that evolves and what it does to traditional outlets is going to be so formative to every debate you guys ever have again. I think it's going to be fascinating to see uh, when Brillo Vision starts, when Andrew Neil's channel starts, um, how they get how they can get it around British compliance, because our mm-hmm. emphasis on balance is entirely different from the United States, and the ability to do a uh, an unfettered Fox News, well, should we say, is very much unproven here. It's a big ask. Uh, yeah, but with with that said, you know there there, there are ways and ways. Uh, if you have to have a conservative and a liberal, you just find the the shrillest, least compelling liberal uh, that that you can. Uh, I can I can recommend a few. Well, um, we are available, and our rates are very reasonable. But you can't travel to Europe anymore to DJ, so you've got. Some- <laughs> We've come to the end of the first podcast of 2021, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, and in particular, how they escaped politics which loomed over Christmas for once. Ian, when the Brexit deal wasn't filling your brain, how did you stay away from political debate over Christmas? The, the incredibly predictable way of books and comics and movies and video games and, and all the other nerdery. Um, the, the best film I saw, and I would just recommend this right now to anyone who just needs to I don't know if you cheer yourself up, but just give yourself some bow. Is is really Baby Teeth, which is this um, sort of Australian indie film. It is so so deeply beautiful and funny and dynamic and different, and it has a performance. Every performance in it is magnificent. There is a moment towards the end where Ben Mendelsohn, Ben Mendelsohn's character, is asked a question by another character, and the acting that he delivers over the next 20 or 30 seconds is so it just knocked me for fucking six and i mean it made me cry and cry and cry even sort of days afterwards i was thinking about it it was still making me cry but most importantly it's just this tremendously empathetic kind piece of storytelling communicated just masterfully by the director but also really by every single actor in it if you if you need to pick yourself up if you can find it out there, I think it's on YouTube to buy. Just go watch Baby Teeth and you might feel slightly better about the world. And the quote on the poster says, it knocked me for fucking six, Ian Dunt. <laughs> Yasmin Saran, what's your, uh, what was your festive period escape route from political things? Um, well, in preparation for what I can only expect as our forthcoming lockdown, I've been trying to learn new recipes. And I got uh, my my boyfriend very kindly, as he's the one in our relationship who can actually cook, um, got me this Palestinian cookbook um, for Christmas because I've been missing my mom's cooking. So I've been, yeah, practicing recipes from that. It's um, uh, Jody Kala's Palestine on a Plate, I think is the title. But um, yeah, they're incredible. There. I don't want to tell my mom that though, because she might get jealous. What's the uh, what's the archetypal party piece Palestinian dish in there that people ought to be attempting? Ooh. See, I haven't tried it yet, but it looks really good. Makluba, which literally means upside down, is just this incredible. Like, if you're looking for like a traditional Palestinian dish, you've just got to go for that. Um, it loads like rice and and chicken or lamb and a lot of fried vegetables. It's just as glorious. Mm. Sounds good, Dimitri. How about you? What was your escape route over the festive time? Okay. Um, I have been reading How to Be a Liberal. (laughs) It's a great book. Um, It has taught me much. I am not under duress. Please do not hurt my family. No, um, all all kidding aside, uh, I uh, very, very predictably, I just fell down the the world of Warcraft uh, well and have not heard since. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat like some conservative politicians in my relationship with video games in that my love for them is inversely proportional to how good I am at them. Mm. Um, and I spend an obsessive amount of time thinking about them and playing them and yet am utter, utter garbage. But it's, you know, it's a wonderful escape from, from politics in that it is something else I can despair at. 
It's not the winning, it's the taking part. Mine is uh, incredibly obvious. I was trying to hammer my Disney Plus subscription over Christmas, the animated Disney movie Soul, mm-hmm. in which literally uh, a man, a musician, dies and is is uh, has to confront the meaning of his existence as there's a possibility that he will return to life. And he literally goes on the most beautifully visually created journey through the other world, the afterlife, and also the kind of subconscious. And and what what we see really is uh, something that's very odd in 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 Disney animation. It's a story about an adult looking back on their life rather than a kid going on an adventure. There are, there are kids involved, but they're very much uh, kind of sounding board characters. And, uh, you know, I, I found it as um, as a middle-aged bloke, incredibly powerful as well as very funny and uh, beautifully created from an illustration point of view. And, you know, we're in this situation where movies don't open in the movies anymore. But if you're going to open something by streaming, I think it was a very good time to open it on Disney Plus because it's something that's, uh, you know, at whatever stage in your life, there's something in it for you. So that's Soul on Disney Plus. The part where he sits and watches himself live tweeting PMQs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You absolute (laughs) It's a beautiful and moving moment there. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our <laughs> special guest, Dimitri Gozabinski. Thanks so much. And our panelist, Ian Dunce. Uh, thank you very much. And Yasmin Sarah. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Back again on Resolute on the show and here are the first of 2021. Hello and Happy New Year from me to Jim McCarran. Matthew, and our man in the Northern Ireland Special Economic Zone, Kevin Von Trevi. Thanks from me to Mark Bateman, Sinead Kent, and Caroline Warner. And finally, hello and best wishes from me to Ben Ashton, David Williams, and James Ezard. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, William Dunt, and Yasmin Saran. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich, and audio production was by me, Alex Rees. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.